over 90% of the animals around the world are on factory farms, and in the US, it's over 99%. Welcome to the Knowledge Archives podcast. We're a group of students on a mission to learn from as many different disciplines of knowledge as possible. I'm your host, Madhav Malhotra, and today I'm glad to be joined by Dr. Chris Bryant, a psychologist from the UK who studies how to get people to reduce animal product consumption. Today, we talk about the problem behind meat consumption, some solutions to change consumers' meat purchases, and what's next in this field. So thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. I'm very happy to dive more into this area that's gaining more attention, and rightfully so. And before we dive into all of the technical details, I'd just love to hear more about your story, an introduction to who you are, and also how you got started in this area of work. Yes, absolutely. So I've been a vegetarian for seven years at this stage uh, and a vegan for about three years. I first gave up eating meat after I went to my friend's philosophy class and was kind of argued into it. And yeah, I spent many years as a very kind of reluctant vegetarian and, uh, you know, I really missed eating meat. And I've always been very into uh, plant-based meat replacements and so on, just eating them personally. It occurred to me that there must be many people like me who understand that there are good reasons to be cutting down our meat intake, but just really like eating meat and so don't want to do that. And so that kind of sparked my interest in uh, in alternative proteins and how what we can do to actually replace meat with with something else that people find acceptable. Yeah, and to specify, you know, the points of everything here, why is meat consumption bad to begin with? What kinds of damages does it cause? Yeah, so there are three, well, at least three kind of major categories of reasons to be eating less meat. The first and, you know, the most important for me is uh, around animal suffering. So there are about 70 billion animals processed for food each year. And the majority of those are on factory farms. So over 90% of the farmed animals around the world are on factory farms where their natural behaviors are suppressed. They're kept in small spaces and cages often. They're bred so that they grow more quickly than they would in nature. And they're also frequently mutilated with things like debeaking and tail docking, which obviously all of those things cause them a great amount of distress. So most people don't want to cause harm to animals. But if you eat meat, you probably are buying that meat from a factory farm. And so, you know, that's something that we could think about doing less of. So that's the first reason. The second reason uh, is around the environmental impact. And there are direct greenhouse gas emissions from livestock, principally from cows. But the other kind of components of this is their feed. Cows eat considerably more than humans do. And that food has to come from somewhere. And so, a lot of the land impact of livestock is actually not from the livestock themselves, but from their feed. So majority of, for example, the soy, which is grown in deforested Amazon rainforest, is not going to make re- meat replacements, but is actually going to feed cows, often in other countries. So there are kind of the direct greenhouse gas emissions, the land use, and also all kinds of other environmental impacts, such as water pollution, eutrophication, and that kind of thing. There are many of these 
many of these environmental impacts linked to livestock production and uh, feed. And then the third kind of set of reasons is around public health. So animal farms are really hot spots for new diseases. It's a situation where we have many often very genetically similar animals packed into small and unhygienic spaces. And so it's the perfect condition for diseases to, to spread. And they often hop to humans. We just recently in the UK had the first confirmed human case of the latest bird flu. And, you know, so that causes all kinds of problems. It's believed that COVID originally came from animals as well. And the three and four emerging diseases are zoonotic, meaning that they come from animals. So that's kind of one part of it. And then the other part of the public health argument is around antibiotic use. Many times farmed animals are given antibiotics, often prophylactically, when they don't even have any illnesses, but they can prevent them from getting illnesses in the future and they can also promote growth. So certain certain types of antibiotics will actually make the animals grow quicker so that they can be harvested more quickly and profitably. So yeah, more there are more medically important antibiotics being given to animals than there are to humans. And of course, this is a big problem in terms of antibiotic resistance, which is you know another thing that might get us if climate change doesn't. So yeah, those are the kind of three major sets of reasons to be cutting back on our meat in terms of animal suffering, um, in terms of the environment and in terms of public health. And are there any key statistics that you'd like to mention in these different areas? So yeah, I mean, I can give you some kind of stats related to these. So yeah, as I mentioned, over 90% of the animals around the world are on factory farms. And in the US, it's over 99% of the farmed animals are on factory farms. And this is something that people don't know about or kind of understand the scale of. Actually, most people in the US specifically, where we have this 99% figure, most people think that most farmed animals are treated well, and even more people think that the animals they eat are treated well, right? It's like, it's everybody else eating the factory farmed animals, but not me. Of course, everybody thinks that and nobody thinks that they're buying the 99% of animals which do come from factory farms. So yeah, that's, that's kind of very jarring in terms of how people's perceptions differ from the reality on that point. There's been kind of various estimates of animal agriculture's contribution to greenhouse gas emissions and to climate change. And they can vary quite a bit depending on how they're counted and what other things are accounted for, for example, land use. But the very minimum figure cited is this 14.5%. A more recent figure using the same set of methods puts that figure at 16.5%. But there are some other figures around when accounting for different types of land use and so on, which go up much higher. I've seen figures as high as 51% when accounting for uh, other things such as land use. And we know that animal products in particular are contributing disproportionately to bad environmental outcomes. There was a, a recent study that said even if we were to cut food waste in half, which, you know, again, this is something that many people think of in terms of food efficiency, food waste, right? Lots of people, well, it's bad to waste food and so on. Cutting food waste in half still would not do as much as people adopting plant-rich diets. So it's not even completely plant-based diets in that case. But there's an example of the power of kind of what we eat being much more important than people tend to think. If you were to ask people about food-related issues, 
probably a lot of people would say food waste, we should waste less food and so on. And packaging as well as the other people that think of the thing that people think of. Um, it must be the case that packaging and food miles, right, transporting food, people think that all these things are, are having a, a large impact. But in fact, it's a lot related to just the food production. And if you're having food from animal sources, they tend to be much, much worse uh, in environmental terms than plant-based foods. Uh, a lot of these will be broader, more comprehensive things. Say, for example, life cycle assessments will kind of consider a range of different outcomes. So that will include things as greenhouse gas emissions, but also water use, energy use. A life cycle assessment is a way of analyzing the various different types of environmental impact of production of certain goods. So, for example, when we look at meat production, we might look at the direct greenhouse gas emissions coming from animals, as well as the environmental impact of their food, the land that they're reared on, the energy that they require to rear in various different ways, and a way of aggregating those different impacts into one kind of analysis. And I know when it comes to these types of impacts, I know there's a lot of regional variability. Are there any particular regions which are worst for each of these three kinds of damages? Yes, that's right. So um, there is kind of regional variability and, uh, and species variability in terms of environmental impact and other types of impacts as well. As with many of these things to do with kind of who's responsible for the environmental impacts, the responsibility has to fall mostly on more developed countries. And a big part of the reason for that is that we are over-consuming meat much more than less developed countries. So there are many people consuming far more meat than is necessary or reasonable in the, the UK and the US and other countries like that. And we have the means to reduce the amount of meat that we're consuming and we have other choices available to us. So there can be regional variability in terms of the impact of things produced in different areas. But oftentimes the food that we're consuming, it, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's produced in the same place as it's consumed, right? And you know, while there is regional variability, it tends to be the case that across regions, animal foods are still much worse than plant foods anywhere you could go. In terms of the environmental impacts of animal products, products from cows tend to be the most destructive. So, so beef and dairy products tend to have the highest greenhouse gas emissions and, and other environmental footprint. And that's largely because they're ruminants. Yeah, ruminants are, are cows and also sheep. So lamb is also kind of very heavy environmental footprint. And ruminants is to do with the way that they digest their food, which causes them to emit more gases, which are disproportionately bad for the environment. But then products from chickens and from fish tend to have the worst impact in terms of animal suffering. And that's largely because they are smaller animals, right? So you simply need more of them to get the same amount of food. You can get, I think, about 200 meals from one cow or two meals from one chicken. So you know you need 100 times as many chickens for the same amount of, of food. Another consequence of being smaller is that chickens are easier to abuse, basically. You can't pick up and throw a cow, but that's often something that's going to happen in, in chicken farming. They tend to be kept in kind of worse environments for them, and there are many times more of them. So in terms of environmental impact, cow-based products are the kind of biggest villain. But in terms of animal welfare, then we're really looking at, at chickens and fish. 
And are these impacts worse in developing countries or developed countries? Well, it's not necessarily the case that the environmental impact of production is higher in less developed countries. A lot of the variation is to do with climate. And so in areas with uh, wet climates where grass grows and cows can eat the grass, then that obviously reduces like the water input necessary, as opposed to if you are having to irrigate crops to feed to animals, you know, it can be what's called green water as opposed to blue water. Blue water is something that humans could have drunk if it wasn't used for another purpose. So there can be, there can be differences in impact based on that. And also just based on the different production methods that are common or available in those countries. Unfortunately, it tends to be the case that factory farming is more resource efficient than expansive farming. So obviously, you can get a bunch of animals in a small space. Part of the reason for do, I mean, really the main reason for doing that is resource efficiency. You don't have to spend so much money on heating their environment, for, for example. And that kind of thing. So, yeah, there, there can be regional variations here and variations based on the production method. But I think that that is often kind of thrown up as a way of casting doubt on the production system in any given country. And it seems it tends to be the case that people assume that their country has the more favorable conditions and the less uh, environmental impact and so on. So, yeah, I think that this talking point about um, kind of regional variation in meat production, while that is true, uh, it's also true that plant-based food pretty much across the board is going to have a much lower impact than animal-based food. And so, you know, it's probably the case that some brands of cigarette are healthier than others, right? But (laughs) it doesn't mean that any of them are are better than not smoking cigarettes. So now, given that we've established that uh, meat is horrible, What are the biggest barriers we face to reducing meat consumption? Yes, well, meat, as you say, is at the core of many of these global problems, but it's not necessarily easy to solve that because the reality is that people like eating meat and most people don't want to reduce their meat consumption. So it then becomes more of a social problem in terms of how can we get people to go along with this and change their behaviours. The biggest barriers to doing that, well, I would say there are two or three major ones. Firstly, it's just taste and kind of sensory enjoyment of of eating meat. Most people just don't want to lose that and will kind of oftentimes come up with other reasons (laughs) around that because that doesn't seem like a good reason on its own. Indeed, it's not really. But it is nonetheless like the largest determinant of food choice. So, you know, it, it needs to be acknowledged in that sense. So that's kind of a big one. And then another one is affordability. When we talk about plant-based alternatives in particular, it can be very cheap to eat just plant-based foods. But if we're talking about kind of animal product alternatives and plant-based meat and dairy and so on, it tends to be the case at the moment that these products are more expensive than their animal-based counterparts. And that's partly due to their relative youth and less developed production systems, right? So as these products kind of exist for longer and become more popular, we developed uh, larger and more efficient ways of producing them. We can expect their price to come down in the longer term. And that's especially the case because they are more resource efficient than, you know, as I mentioned with, with uh, animal feed and so on. And another one up there is, is health. People want to eat healthy foods. 
And I think that there can be a real misconception around plant-based animal products alternatives. People have this idea that processed kind of necessarily means unhealthy. Of course, it's not necessarily the case, right? Some forms of food processing can make food more healthy. So, you know, people have a, a kind of a naturalistic bias towards less processed foods and oftentimes will assume that, that the animal products are healthier than their plant-based replacements, but it's not the case. Um, when we look at their nutritional profiles, we can see that plant-based products tend to have lower levels of saturated fat, lower levels of cholesterol, comparable levels of the things that we want to get from meat, like protein and iron and so on. And yeah, there are several such studies that do these kind of comparisons and nutritional profiles, which tend to favor plant-based products in terms of getting what we need and avoiding what we don't. And there are also randomized trials now, which compare, I think it's beyond meat consumption versus beef consumption over a month. And people who are eating the meat replacement actually have significantly improved markers of cardiovascular health. In particular, TMAO is mentioned uh, in the paper, which is a, a marker of heart disease. So animal product alternatives provide health benefits over animal products, but many people have the intuition that that would be the other way around, but it's not correct. And are there any strategies that we have to get around these barriers and you know get people on the right path? Yeah, so one of the ways that I've approached this question about how to reduce meat consumption recently is with this stages of change model, which is used in the cessation of problematic behaviors, including smoking and alcoholism and so on. And there's kind of very well established phases of change that people go through. So the first stage is called pre-contemplation, which means that people haven't yet thought that this might be a problem worth addressing. And in any given problematic behavior, and it seems to be the case in meat and animal product consumption as well, we can expect around 40% of the people engaged in this behavior are at the pre-contemplation stage. So they haven't thought that it might be a problem. They haven't even got to engaging with any of the reasons for or against. It's just not in their awareness yet. And actually, with respect to meat consumption, it seems like this could be as high as 50% of people. And so there are many people who just don't know about the impacts of eating meat. And you know there are ways to reach as many people as possible with that information just to move them on to the next stage. And many times that won't mean that they stop eating meat right away, but this is you know how it can be useful to think about this in terms of stages. So the next stage after that is the contemplation stage where people are really thinking about the pros and cons basically and uh, making a decision as to whether it's a good idea for them to be cutting down their meat consumption in this case. And then this is at the stage where people who have had conversations about this topic with meat eaters will mostly see a lot of the kind of confabulations and, and motivated reasoning and coming up with reasons as they go along, or they're encountering cognitive dissonance and engaging in motivated reasoning oftentimes where it's a case of, I've got my conclusion that I want to be able to eat meat. And so I've got to come up with the, <laughs> got to come up with the reasons to get there rather than, you know, looking at the reasons and, and then reaching the conclusion based on those. So that's the contemplation stage. And this is where we can offer encounter a lot of that resistance. 
But after that, a decision is made. So people will decide that this is something they're going to try to do or not, uh, in which case they can come back around the next time that they're reminded that this is an issue. Uh, so it can be a kind of circular process in this in those first two stages and a lot of time spent not thinking about it, which I think is an issue. But if they do decide to make a change, then they move to the preparation stage. So this is where people have decided that they're going to try to cut out meats, for example, and they might have already taken some steps towards doing that. For example, they might be trying a few different vegetarian products that they think could be good replacements. They might have done Veganuary or Meat Free Mondays, something like this, where they're kind of t- you know testing the waters of of eating meat free, basically. And yeah, they'll be they'll be kind of lining up to to make a change. And then after that, at the action stage, you can have this is where people are basically making the change, and they're in the first normally is defined as the first six months of the new behavior. So one of the lessons from this model is basically that the longer you stick with it, the less likely you are to relapse, right? Like most people who go back to eating meat are going to do it in the first six months of trying to avoid it. So, but if you can push through that and you have kind of supportive people around you and there is an environment that supports the new behavior and you can keep it going, then you reach the maintenance stage where you have kind of established the meat-free diet and you can, you're, you're somewhat used to it. And then it's a case of, of maintaining that, the final termination stage where somebody do, you know, no longer feels like it's any effort, basically. And you know, behavior change people often talk about that being after about five years. So yeah, I think that thinking about meat reduction in terms of these stages is quite helpful for a number of reasons. Firstly, it lets us identify different people and where they are and kind of choose interventions which might be most helpful for them. So for example, somebody at the pre-contemplation stage who has never thought about it, they probably just need to be told some of the facts and constantly exposed to reasons why they ought to start thinking about it rather than, for example, somebody in the preparation stage, we might say they're already on board in principle and now they might need help in working out how to do it. For example, they might like recipes and that kind of thing. There's different interventions for people at different stages. I think another advantage of thinking about it this way is that it can enable us to see progress in individuals who might otherwise frustrate us. So when you are speaking to somebody about meat reduction and you know they're coming up with their reasons that it's fine to eat meat about our ancestors ate meat and you know whatever else meaty to say that dissonance and motivated reasoning that's being expressed is actually progress from the pre-contemplation stage when they just weren't thinking about it at all so even although they might appear to be resisting and and you know looking around for their reasons that is better than just not thinking about it which is pretty much most people's default with respect to this issue. So I think that, yeah, that's important to bear in mind when you have when you can speak to people about meat reduction and they are somewhat resistant, that can be a sign of progress from where they were, which is just not thinking about it at all. Yeah, thank you for summarizing these different behavioral interventions, as they're called in research. Now, I have a few bones to pick here with these these types of studies because oftentimes, you know, they'll ask people 
okay, read this paragraph and then, you know, do you intend on eating less meat? And I, I just think it seems unrealistic that we measure the intention to eat meat over the actual outcome. What leads to this kind of research? Right. Yeah. So there's a lot of research which uses basically intentions, self-reported intentions, as opposed to actual consumption. And the major reason for that is pretty much just pragmatism, right? Obviously, it's easier to ask about what people will say they'll do in the future. The next level up from that is self-reporting of what people have done. If you can do some kind of follow-up a week later, for example, you can ask what they ate last week. And that is better than intentions, but also is still imperfect, right? People might lie or they might just not have a good idea of what they've eaten, right? If they haven't kept a food diary, they might not remember or they might misremember, particularly in the context when they know that they're meant to be in some kind of meat reduction intervention, right? Which many people are going to deduce. So yeah, self-reported intentions, while they are quite imperfect as a measure, they certainly are better than nothing. They do tend to be correlated with behaviors. And of course, they are kind of a prerequisite for dietary change. So not all of the people who intend to eat less meat are going to follow through, but you can be quite sure that all of the people who don't intend to eat less meat won't, right? It's quite hard to measure food consumption directly, but there are a couple of innovative ways in which you can do this. So I have a couple of projects going on at the moment where I'm really trying to overcome this problem of how to get a more accurate measure of what people are eating. One of them is looking at a big retail database of sales of different food categories, and that's based on actual purchase data. The database I'm looking at is based on supermarkets in London over the course of a year. And you know we can see in the different months, in the different areas, how much meat people were buying. Um, but that has its own problems as well, because it's just like looking at data that exists already. And then perhaps there's something that happened in that year or in a certain area where you can have some kind of natural experiment. But for the most part, you're not going to be able to account for those extraneous variables quite so well. And then the other thing which is quite promising for this kind of research is observing food consumption in uh, university cafeterias. So many universities will have, basically students can use their student IDs to buy food and they'll have kind of credit on there and then they go to the canteen and this is how they buy their food. And in that case, you have a situation where you know, you know, if you can access the data, you can know who has bought what food and you can also potentially have some kind of intervention upstream of that. For example, if you you know put up posters about about meat reducing in one set of university dorms but not another, and then observe you know how how people in each of those settings are are then subsequently eating meat, then that gives you a pretty accurate and precise way of of measuring behaviour change based on this intervention. So, yeah, there are some kind of innovative data measurement methods that we can use to overcome this kind of problem. But research based on self-report and even on intentions is is certainly better than nothing. Yeah, maybe we could, you know, just have a phone camera to record what's going in and out of your fridge and use some AI bot to categorize, you know, this this stuff was meat, this stuff was not, so you know, this person is good. <laughs> yes. Uh yeah, that's not a bad idea to be fair. Camera in the fridge and uh some kind of AI to interpret the consumption of different foods. 
yeah, I mean, if there are if there are things that do that, then uh, yeah, that's potentially a pretty good a pretty good plan. You'd want to look at the food coming in and going out of the fridge, as it were, right? Um, so you could have you know less meat going into the fridge over the course of a month or something like that. Now another bone to pick here. What leads to so much research just based on such short-term timelines? Like read this particular passage. And then immediately after, you know, ask about the intention to change eating meat, or even at the maximum, you know, follow up a week after and measure, have people actually reduced meat consumption? Shouldn't we be measuring more than a week? Yeah, it's a good question. I think with intentions, you're going to have probably the strongest effect, like straight after the intervention. And then whether that translates into change in the longer term is, is kind of a different question. But as I say, you know, it's still better than nothing in that case. And we can detect if something is leading to more people intending to reduce than others. But again, I think it's just going to be a question of pragmatics, kind of cost and just infrastructure, basically, to to carry those out. So looking at consumption in the longer term, of course, it's kind of logistically more difficult to do. And in many cases, you'll still be relying on self-report. There is certainly room for improvement in the kinds of uh, the kinds of outcome measures and and research design in this area. It's definitely an area of research which is growing with time. There's been more and more action in this area, and there are more kind of journal special issues and so on focusing on this topic. And so, yeah, it seems to be that the animal product reducing research communities that I'm a part of are growing also, and so. You know, I think with more people kind of doing work in the area, it becomes it tends towards higher quality. Now, finally, one last issue that you know I take with this behavioral intervention research is it often seems like the research strategies are just you know here's this one thing and it's very academic. It's very different from let's say commercial strategies to change behavior, like say gamification. How do we combine these? commercial and research strategies just to figure out, you know, what's the best thing we can do overall to reduce meat consumption? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I th- so I think with things like gamifying behavior change, for example, I, you know, can be a very effective thing to do. And there are, there are some apps which can be used for meat reduction along those lines. For example, there's inhibition training where you kind of you know react to the food circled in green and don't react to the food circled in red and if you do that consistently you will start to have those responses when you see you know encounter those foods in the wild but i think you know with something like that it's very much at the action stage as opposed to these earlier stages so you know what that means is that it's for people who already want to reduce their meat consumption right if somebody doesn't think it's an issue then of course they're not going to be playing the the meat reducing streaks uh, and that kind of thing right so there are certainly ways of implementing known effective behavior change methods within meat reduction and then uh, you know there are on the earlier stages for example in the pre-contemplation and contemplation stages where people are yet to make that decision then there can be more and less effective messages to show them to get them to decide one way or the other again there are kind of pragmatic factors here in terms of it's 
easier to expose somebody to these kind of shorter interventions, which might be, you know, read this vignette or something like that is something that you often see in, in psychological research. And of course, it's going to have smaller impact than kind of a larger scale like marketing campaign, but it's also going to be easier to measure that impact. If you have something like a campaign of TV ads or billboards or anything else, it's going to be very difficult to know you know, even if, even if you can then measure a change in behavior, it's going to be difficult to attribute that to that one cause rather than other kind of extraneous variables. You know, the larger scale and scope you get, the more difficult it is to, to isolate those effects. But usually the idea is to kind of look at the principles of the messages and techniques studied at that smaller scale and then, you know, find the ones that are effective on that smaller scale before then scaling up to kind of bigger, larger interventions. And finally, how can we get more cooperation between researchers and, say, commercial experts in changing behavior, like user experience designers, for example, so that they can work together on reducing meat consumption? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I think that the animal protection movement seems to have started to value research more so in recent years, and in particular the effective animal advocacy communities are likely to be, you know, to look favorably on this kind of research. One issue that we have there is that these communities tend to favor institutional interventions rather than individual level interventions. And so while there are the kind of people who would pay attention to such research, it's not necessarily going to be uh, like a funding priority for them. But in terms of like companies and charities basically paying more attention to this kind of thing. It seems that effective animal advocacy in general has encouraged charities in particular to be incentivized to pay attention to what works and what doesn't. And as there is more information about that, then uh, you know, more people will be, will be taking that on board and you know, incorporating those lessons into their uh, various campaigns and so on. And on the company side, well, of course, there's more kind of built-in incentives for plant-based food companies to find the best ways of marketing their products, for example, and to have a better idea of what's working and what isn't because you have you know, a bottom line that you can see uh, whether it's growing, basically. So I think that it can be more measurable in some ways in terms of you know, the most effective ways of marketing plant-based products. And there is kind of more incentive for businesses to be looking into that as opposed to like meat reduction research per se. But it does seem to be the case that charities are paying more attention to this kind of thing and implementing more of the lessons. I think that one problem that you can have is that if there's a charity who's very committed to a certain method or has invested a lot into some certain method of campaigning, sometimes they don't want to ask whether that's effective in case it isn't not all organizations are going to be open to changing what they do. And so, you know, when you find organizations that are open to changing and are open to, you know, hearing evidence and, and learning about how to improve what they're doing, then that's a great thing. And it seems to be the case, as I say, that as that community and tendency grows, it will be, it will tend to be kind of adopted more broadly as well. Well, I really appreciate you going through all of this research. I know we started off with just basic questions, and then now we're talking about the future of the field. So I very much appreciate getting to talk to an expert about all the things that are going on in the field and what will be coming next. So 
Thank you for taking the time today. Thanks very much. It was a pleasure talking to you. And uh, yeah, I look forward to seeing the podcast.